In this episode, I'm joined by Nathaniel Menninger, creator of the documentary film The Porter, which follows him on an 11-day trek to Everest Base Camp, living and working among the Tamang porters. When tourists climb Everest, they don't carry their own equipment. That job is done by local porters, who, in difficult conditions for minimal pay and out of the sight of the clients, carry loads of up to 100 kilograms each. We learn about Nathaniel's experiences, immersing himself in this world, carrying the same loads and living in the same conditions as the Tamang porters. We discover how Nathaniel, who speaks six languages, initially taught himself Nepali to study meditation in the Himalayas, and why his life of blending adventure and art made this project so personally significant. We learn about the physical and psychological challenges of the shoot itself, as well as the profound identity crisis that Nathaniel suffered in its aftermath. So without further ado, Nathaniel Menninger. I saw your film yesterday and it's amazing, fantastic. I thought I've got to email this guy. I, actually, within the first 10 minutes, I found you and emailed you. And then I, I watched the rest immediately after that. Really great. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's, it's different. It's definitely different, but thank <laughs> well, you. Thank you for watching. It is cool. It's, it's very strange to have people watch your work all around the world. It's cool, but it's just strange. I was watching your other podcast, by the way, and I was like, he's got a lot of books in there. I wonder what he's got. I wonder what kind of stuff he's got, and I yeah. will ask later. But I was interested at what you had. Yeah. Oh, are you a book guy yourself? I'm trying to become one. I think it supposedly helps you learn more. Reading. Yeah. I've heard that rumor. Yes. Well, I <laughs> don't really like... read them. I just own them, and I'm hoping just by having them near me. Wait, that's what I started skin. doing. <laughs> I thought. Maybe I'll just become smarter if I first just have them around me. Yeah, I think that's the first step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's begin, shall we, uh, somewhat more formally. Let's do it. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So, Nate, your film, The Porter, which oh. has recently been released, follows you on an 11-day trek as a porter from Lukla, Nepal, 94,000 feet above sea level to Everest Base Camp and back. It's really um, fascinating. And you make that entire journey uh, living exactly as the Tamang porters live. But that wasn't the original shape the documentary was going to take. Could you talk a bit about what inspired you to explore this subject and how the vision changed as the project unfolded? Yeah, sure. Very, very articulate, Steve. Very articulate. And he knows, he knows his stuff. He's a Tamang porter, so it's nice. Um, that means very vigilant when you're watching. So kudos, thank you. Uh, well, I have been doing projects like this my whole life, my whole adult life. So for five years, I think, and they've obviously grown and grown and grown and grown. And, you know, there's a few reasons this one came about. I had actually learned Nepali originally for a different project. I know you're real big into the awareness, self-awareness and meditation. I had never done it. And so one of my projects was like, well, let's, I've seen James Bond movies. What if I teach myself Nepali? There's, there must be these monasteries in the mountains because of James Bond. So what if I just learn Nepali, then I could go knock on the door and ask to swear to silence for three months. Cause in my mind that existed. Um, that's why I learned Nepali. And that was a year prior or 15 months, whatever prior. And uh, I had been back one more time so 
as a guide then. And then I saw Porter's A, and I'd seen this rift growing between clients, foreigners, and people who live at Everest. You know, there was a brawl in 2015 that made international news. Then there were strikes, which didn't make international news, but, you know, were very big. And I was like, this is not doing well. And if you go over there, you can just see it's getting worse and worse. And I was like, maybe something could bridge the gap. Maybe this could, maybe this could bridge the gap. A, B, I was like, I really want to climb Everest. This was more important. I really want to climb Everest, but how, how, like I'm a bum. I was a writing bum. You know, if you've read and have read people like Henry Miller or Jack Kerouac, which I haven't even read, but you know that, you know, that, you know, there are these people who are just sustaining themselves and doing adventures. And that was kind of my thing. And, uh, I just wanted that, you know, I had no money. So I was like, I need to climb Everest. How do I do that? Well, I'll work as a porter. That will be my move. And then the third was I needed proof. Um, and this was the most driving force probably in the end was like, I needed proof uh, to, to prove what I had done. You know, I'd been writing and writing and writing, but who would buy my books? If I don't read, who the, who's gonna buy my books? No one. And who's gonna believe anything that's in my books? So I need visual proof. And the original goal was just because of, I'm kind of crazy was to obviously climb Everest, to summit Everest and to be a porter on Everest. And that would be the world record. And that would be an easy thing to raise money around and an easy thing to raise awareness. And that was the goal, very lofty, but that was the goal. Um, when I got to Nepal, I obviously only had raised a couple thousand and raised is a stretch of a term, but uh, I had pulled together a few thousand and some was a loan from a friend and I still thought all the money would come through for Everest, you know, and, and I was still going about the motions as if, if I did, all this money would come through. And uh, it didn't, a lot of other stuff happened we might talk about, but I decided, you know, I don't want to leave with nothing. So I got one month, I'm going to do something. I'll, I'll go to Everest Base Camp. Unfortunately, if you've been to Nepal um, or if you know about it, it's a much Though it's not as namesake, as cool as climbing Everest, it's probably much more important. The industry is much, much, much greater off of Everest. So yeah, that's how it adapted. That's how it adapted, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Let's go back over some of those points. You mentioned you learned Nepali and you speak actually six languages. Isn't that right? You know, that I speak four and the other two, French is like more of an understanding and Arabic is like, if, if you told me I had to speak Arabic in two weeks, I could, I feel like I could get it. So four really well. And the two, if I had to prove it in two weeks, I feel like I could get them really quick. What uh, are the four that you speak uh, very well? They're English. You know, it's crazy with this film, people are sending stuff in and, and a lot of people speak a lot of languages. So it makes me humble. It makes me kind of like, ah, I need to learn more. But um, I know English, obviously, I think, Spanish, Portuguese, and uh, Nepali, and then French and Arabic are the other ones. That's a lot of languages. What's your language learning strategy? Well, for N Nepali, for instance, do you have a strategy that you've been using for all of those? Um, and, and how did you specifically uh, learn Nepali? Yeah, this is crazy. Um, I don't, I've, I, do you speak any languages? 
Yeah, a little bit. Not as many as you. <laughs> you start to see similarities when you do, though. And um, if you've learned in university, maybe you've seen how they put together a language at a university. It's very, no rag on them. It's quite um, regimented, very slow. <laughs> uh, but I had learned, in learning these other languages, I'd, I'd learned the basics. So in Nepali, there was no textbook I found. And I was living in my friend's well, we had an apartment in DC and, you know, section eight, which is like government housing was very cheap. And, um, and I was like, I need to do this project. I need to learn Nepali because that's clearly going to help me. And uh, very, a little delusional. Um, I sat down on the computer and just started Googling. And so to me, it was, okay, let's just, let's just start at the beginning. So what do I need to know? I need to know the alphabet. Then I need to know the phonetics of the alphabet, how you say the alphabet. Then you need to know how does a word even look? How do you put the alphabet together? How do you write it? Okay. And then once you know how you write it, how does a sentence look? Does it, is it structured like English subject, um, you know, verb object, or is it subject object verb, which basically means like he ran to the store or he to the store ran. And then you get that and then okay now you still don't know understand understand anything because you don't know any vocab and you don't know conjugation and so what's the present tense and you build it like that and a friend was just talking to me and she said i'm trying to learn spanish and i'm using these apps and i was not i was ragging on the apps but only because you know if you don't understand the building blocks of something you might be able to say words and say phrases and be able to get around and you might be learn just enough but to learn is to be able to build upon that in the future, I think, to be able to connect the dots with stuff you haven't learned. And uh, if you know the building blocks, then when you get to Nepal, when you get to Guatemala, when you get to you know, Tanzania, you can, you can learn a future tense and the past tense, and you can understand what the prefix and suffix and where they go and how they add on. And, and so, yeah, that's, I just was Googling a bunch of stuff and kind of wrote my own book and then just repeated it until my mind went numb well i guess i've got a couple more questions about it you know i'm aware of different mm, hypotheses about language learning like the input method stephen crashen's input input method well you're probably well, you're aware more than i am <laughs> uh well yeah maybe who knows but how did you um get to the point where you could understand napoli it's one thing to have an understanding of the grammar and then to build up a vocab base that you can do, I think, somewhat by yourself through repetition. But mm -hmm. uh, understanding, uh, decoding, when it's being said to you uh, quickly in different accents and, and, and vernacular and so on, how did you get that together? That's a, you might, I want to ask about whatever you mentioned or ask you to send it to me because I've never heard of anything. Um, that's a good question. So <clears throat> first you're just like, you use the same immersion technique as you do in the film as you do with language and you're going to get better more quickly that's just how i've kind of learned it and uh so you're hopping on the airplane you're starting to speak you're starting to write down new words you're speaking as much as you can you understand a little bit it's a little tough i mentioned i was going for that silence thing that valve silence which turned up to just to be vipassana if you've heard of that that was the only alternative but i felt like i was doing it in the heartland so it was different and uh you know, I had never meditated at all. I'd never done any of that. I was only doing that because I looked down upon it and I thought people who did it were weird and it would be hard. So that's a whole other story, but I came out of that 
and my mind was like obviously super sharp and I could finally I was better at Nepali I could distinguish words for the first time coming out of that when as they're being spoken I could hear the line breaks and the word breaks and then from there you know a lot of it is past experience so if you're in the second point of a conversation and someone's inflection goes up or someone's inflection goes down he's like okay he's asking one of two things he's asking you know because we're so early in the conversation he's only going to ask and i'm a foreigner given all the information he's only going to ask like what country are you from or you know what is this and sometimes someone will ask something different but you can guess and if you're wrong then you'd be like oh. but if you're right then you can start to link that word and associate and you know when you don't have a dictionary it's it's a way to kind of create a dictionary as you go and you do that enough and eventually, you know, it's like when you're reading and you don't know a big word, you know, you kind of fit it into the context. So if you see it again and again and again, you can start to understand this is what this word means. Mm. And it's just a, it was mainly that Vipassana thing made me somehow realize the words. And then from there, just immersion and yeah, just immersion. Yeah, I think that one of the things I loved about the documentary is that a great deal of it is in Nepali because you can speak mm. with the porters in Nepali and they're speaking with you in Nepali and you're bantering in Nepali and you're having jokes and teasing each other and challenging each other and, you know, all that kind of stuff, all in Nepali. And there's that um, that dividing line of, mm. of going via a translator, which is often done in, in these sorts of documentaries, which is not really necessary. So really fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about this, your meditation uh, expedition then. What, what's the story behind that? This isn't the documentary exactly, but what, what's the story behind that? That was, so that was, you know, my, I don't know how, what number project. Um, I call them projects. They're pretty much just life, just life, life experiences. And I like to, you know, when I was young in college, I had, ran with the bulls and I had, it was that red bull era and uh, it was how close to the edge of a cliff, how crazy can you get? And for me, you know, I never really felt like I fit in. I just, everyone feels that, but I really wanted to stand out. You know, I really wanted to show something. So the craziest thing for me is what if I run with the bulls, which is awful. That's awful in itself, but I did it. If I run with the bulls, how can I do it in the craziest way as a local? And then let me go to the most extreme extent possible as a professional. So under their restrictions, do it the most. And uh, can I handle that? A lot of just a personal, like, am I able to do that? And so that grew and grew and grew in several different things. And the, the meditation one was probably the first time I decided to build my life around this. So I'd done all these things, but I'd and while I had committed, I hadn't done anything yet, like in the form of being committed to this as my life, my life, you know, that changes, but my trajectory. And so this was like, I'm, I'm taking off. I can do this for little to no money because I obviously didn't have much money. And uh, it's so extreme that it would be good to write about. Like this will be, this will be good, you know? And so I just took off and like I said, I thought there was these monasteries in the mountains. This is not how it is. A Tibetan teacher from university told me I was an idiot. And there was this alternative, the Pashna, and I could have done it in America. And I was like, oh, well, we don't need to tell people that. We can, uh, we'll do the authentic version. And I went in and, you know, that, that was a wild experience. So it came out. And then one day later, 
Um, I was like, okay, I'll go high altitude ice climbing now. It was more like I'll go trekking. And if I can go high altitude ice climbing, that would be another project. And unfortunately, I undercut the market a lot at the time, which is pretty much what my film says don't do. <laughs> and uh, I did that project. And yeah, and then there's a whole much longer story. But uh, that was the first time in Nepal. And then I kind of locked myself away to write and write because I needed to have a life you know you have to do your podcast to have a life you gotta somehow make income or do something so that was i figured would be the move at the time what's it like three months having never meditated before oh i only did the two weeks which is vipassana three months i wish do i wish i would have gone freaking i would have gone to another planet if i had been for three months i would be i don't know where i'd be right now like I know that after two weeks, I mean, you know, I know you're big into it. So you probably already know everything. For me, it was, you know, the principle was like, how hard can you focus and can you feel every molecule in your body at the same exact time? And, you know, in theory and scientifically, you can feel this. Can you feel it everywhere? And I was like, I don't know. And by the end, I just remember <clears throat> you're sitting there for over an hour and a half because they make you sit for an hour and you can't move and obviously have excruciating pain but you continue to try and not move and the more you know you learn techniques to not move and eventually the last day i just remember sitting there for over an hour and your ears are buzzing and your head is ringing and and you have no pain and it's over an hour and time flies like that and uh i remember asking the guy who could speak after on the 10th day or something and I was like, dude, what the hell just happened? Like, I didn't feel any pain. He's like, well, did you feel a sensation? You know? And I was like, yeah, for sure. He was like, that is pain. You're just, you're just removed from it. And uh, I was like, damn, that's pretty cool. And you know, you have the out of body, a little experiences and things like that. But uh, yeah, it was wild. At the time I swore that I'd never meditate again because I thought it was a drug. And I didn't want to be addicted because it feels like a drug when you're when you're vibrating and shit. And I was like, I don't want to be addicted to this, but I've since found it can be very stabilizing. So I've come a long way, I think. Where does your drive to put yourself in these extreme situations come from? My drive, dude. At the time, it was because I was so poor, you know, being the the being poor and having your friends be rich and having everyone you know be rich. Yeah, of course, you're not as poor as other people. But at the time, you know, when you're young, you compare yourself a lot. And online, all you look like is just a flitty traveler posting these Instagram pics. And in my mind, I had a clear vision of, of what I was trying to do. Clearish, you know, adapting, but and I just needed to prove that I just just needed to prove to my parents that I wasn't like a wasted child that I wasn't that I wasn't a lot of things a lot of it was proof to others at the time and so the bigger I went the more I did and more I could prove um that was honestly a lot of the drive then uh the drive is changing you know one of the things is curiosity I'm very curious like oh I had a 
I was with someone a while ago and they were very pious, you know, they really believed in religion. And at the time I didn't believe in any notion at all of any God of any sorts, whether you want to call it consciousness or whatever you think, I was just like very rooted in this. There was no concept of anything else, of any connectivity. And, uh, you know, that was like, well, maybe well, what, you know, something has, there was like an emotion I felt. And I was like, why would that ever occur? And I'd set out like, let's see, you know, if this is real, if that is real. And you'd have these big questions in your mind and to be curious a little bit. And then, yeah, now I think it's growing more with the, having something made for the first time, you know, I have these books that I just sit on. I feel like they're not ready. And if you sit on them, it's not finished. And having the film at least par partially finished out and about, you feel different and you feel like, okay, I have to adapt. You have nothing really to prove to others anymore. Now it's more like a realization that I just know nothing about anything and there's like a lot more to learn and and how much can you can you accomplish as much as some of these other people who accomplish a lot uh, comparison and competitiveness i know people are, a lot of people poop on it but it can be good driving force as well so i don't know we've got a lot to learn you know <laughs> who do you hold in your mind as examples of people whose achievements you admire Ooh, I could ask you the same question with those books around you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I admire, like right now I'm reading Van Gogh's letters. And uh, yeah, I admire, I admire, I admire that type of, that type of rigidity or that type of passion, that type of like, you know, swearing to what you believe in and sticking with it as long as you can, as hard as you can. Um, yeah, I, I'll take anyone. I'll, I'll listen to anyone. And yeah, I don't know. I, like who I look up to a lot of, I don't know. You, that's a weird thing. Like, I'm not going to say I try not to look up to anyone, even though I do look up to them, but in idleness, you, sh you shouldn't want look up to people because, because you're your own person. You know, as the Buddhists say, that would be the the root of whatever evil. <laughs> well, you asked me, you know, who I admire. I certainly admire what you've accomplished in this documentary. And one part that I that stood out to me was you were determined to do the entire 11 day trek just like the Tamang porters did it. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the conditions in which a typical porter uh, does their job. Um, but the thing that stuck out to me was you were really determined to do it just like that. And they gave you lots of opportunities and encouraged you to take it a little bit easier, to sleep in a slightly nicer place or to drink the purified water and so on and so forth. But each point, there's several interactions throughout the film. Uh, you, you push back with them and you insist on doing it, it their way. And I think it seems that their attitude towards you slowly changed over those 11 days. Um, as you just didn't give up, basically, and you insisted on doing it just like them. And it looked like towards the end, maybe uh, there was an acceptance there, a sort of sense of brotherhood is the word that you use in the film. Um, so 
could you talk a little bit about the typical conditions of a, a porter's job, uh, why it was that you, you wanted to do it just like them, and, and also that dynamic of determination, uh, rigidness perhaps, that like you mentioned with Van Gogh, that uh, you had to have um, to pull that off. Um, yeah, I didn't even know I said brotherhood in the film. I don't even remember that. I think, uh, I gotta watch the thing. I can't really watch it right now. I kind of get the heebie-jeebies. But um, because being my first opportunity to have real proof, you know, my first chance at having a chance in life, um, I guess I'd had a few chances before. This is like the first visual proof of what I do for real. Like I, as a real cameraman, a cinematographer, Babin Dulal, it was, I didn't even know he was very talented at the time, but uh, we didn't really know each other at all. That's all, we just met on a, a fluke already in Nepal. Anyways, with it having those circumstances, I'm obviously gonna go as deep as I can. Like, you know, I think Jimmy Chin calls it Kodak confidence. And it's the idea, like you're gonna go as, you know, when you're having at the, you're at the bar with your friends and someone has the Snapchat on, like people start dancing in front of it. I, it's that theory, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go into this because I have to now, like people are gonna see. So I'll go, I, I'd never quite been as rigid and as intense and immersive as this, but obviously with the camera I did. And so that boiled down to what type of shirt, you know, I'm not gonna wear a dry fit, I'm wearing a cotton shirt. Do I have new shoes? I'm not gonna have new shoes. I feel like they wouldn't have new shoes. What kind of jacket? Not expensive. How much does a porter pay? How much does a porter pay? You know, you're like getting into fights with random people about like, and like, what do you thought? I'm just, I want this. And, um, you, you want to swear to that as as closely as you can. And when we get there, we're introduced to the clients and they introduce me and they don't introduce the other porters. And, uh, you know, to me, it's like, this is not a fair thing. Like I need to see if I can be as strong as them. And in order to do that, I need the same exact experience. Like that's it. So if you're going to introduce me, introduce them. Because if you don't introduce them now, I'm, now I'm not going to be as strong as them. <laughs> you know, it was it was naive in that way. And as it went on, I wanted to experience the worst possible situation as a porter that I could to see if I could handle it, to see if I was strong enough. So when we'd go into the houses, you know, they'd say, do you want tea? I'd be like, do you want tea? You know, do you want to sit down? Do you want to sit down? I just wanted to be another person. And when there's people sleeping on the floor, I'd offer to sleep on the floor. And uh, it got to a point that was so comical that, you know, we're in the off season. So there's a lot of extra room. It's not super crowded. There's two blankets usually per person. And I'm asking, they tell me, you know, you only get one blanket in season. So I would like, I only want one blanket and I'd, <laughs> I'd throw it off or give it to someone. And I just wanted to see, and you know, they'd laugh like who's this idiot American is ridiculous. And uh, that ridiculousness the bit of nuttiness I think helps because everyone likes is perplexed and everyone likes to be I guess around a nut a little bit and so uh it definitely helped it definitely helped me you know get in and be friendly and understand more I mean the thing is is doing it for those reasons getting in like that immersing yourself that deep I mentioned why, and you know, you want to be strong and see if you can, but you know, at the time you have no idea how going 
going that deep, what it will do to your psyche. I had no idea what it would do to me. And uh, it was quite the awakening. But but yeah, that, that was pretty much it. That's why I went deep and why I think, you know, it started to open things up. I started, we started to be more friendly around each other. And, and one of the best scenes in the entire film for, for me is at the highest camp, best scene being the most authentic, um, right at the highest camp singing, my cameraman isn't actually there. <clears throat> and a low, like another porter is filming, just someone picked up the camera. And it was the, it was the time we were all, there was just, it didn't feel like there was much of a film between between the camera and us and me and them. And it was like, oh, this is kind of dope. At that point, it was just like, we're all in this at this point. It doesn't matter if you're trying to fake it or trying to make a movie or not, like you're here and this is kind of brutal. Yeah. What did it do to your psyche? You talked about an awakening. Yeah, well, I mean, you can imagine if you lived I mean, I mentioned briefly the pro type of projects I was doing and how self-centered they were. And that's not a bad thing. They just were very self-centered. Um, <clears throat> if you had followed your brother or sister or mother or father around verbatim, you brushed your teeth at the same time, you ate the same food, you studied the same things, you read the same books, you sat in the same bed, you did what they did as closely as you could. And there was times I snuck off and spoke little English. I'll admit I'm not perfect. I needed a break here and there. Um, but if you did that for a day, if you did that for two days, three days, if you did that for 23 days, 11 days, whatever, you know, you essentially have a, a scar on your mind of what it, you essentially start to feel what they feel, you know? And it's not even empathy, it's actual real experience. And yeah, you're not going to feel the full breadth of what your brother or father feels, but you'll feel a large percentage. And however long you go, you'll feel more and more. And um, I had never experienced empathy really like that. You know, I was doing things because I wanted, just because I knew I should be doing things to help, but I didn't know, I didn't think about others' feelings. I didn't feel what others felt. And so when I was making this movie, you know, I went to Hollywood two weeks after this film. And uh, I went there, I had a free plane change. I still had no money. Obviously I'd spent everyone else's money and I had really no money to begin with myself. So I was living on a couch in Los Angeles, riding around on a bike with no brakes, going to Hollywood meetings that were wild. I mean, if you've ever seen the movies like Spyglass, it's, starts with that guy with the big you know telescope and with the, the lighthouse and it's a very marquee logo and company i'm in the top of the skyscraper going up an elevator without any buttons the elevator doesn't even have buttons it just magically takes you up drops you off and i'm wearing a ratty tatty sweatshirt smelling not too good i'm eating 7-eleven if you know what 7-eleven is i'm eating their hot dogs for sustenance which is basically like you're eating below street food, you know? And uh, my mind, like I'm having all the success and I'm trying to pitch this series and this dream of, you know, all, the only people I have to relate to are like Anthony Bourdain and, and uh, Dirty Jobs. Just, that's the only thing I even have on my mind. The only thing I can relate to. So I'm, I'm just trying, like, maybe I'll do a series. That will be easier. Then I won't have to work as much anymore. Someone else will make the film. 
someone else will make the film. And uh, at the same time, my mind is, is devolving. And, you know, I didn't know why at all. I had no idea. I was just, my mind is getting harder and harder and harder and harder to control. And uh, I had to go home. I left. I knew in leaving, I was leaving and I might not have that opportunity. And I started cutting the film, still thinking that, you know, someone could edit it for me because I had never made a film. I never researched a film. I never wanted to make a film. I knew zero. I mean, a little more than a film. My dad had taught me a little editing when I was young. So I had very, very basics and I had no interest in it. And, um, okay, I'll, I'll start making a film because I have nothing else in my life to do. And no one's going to come and make it. And no one did make it. So I keep making it. I'll make it longer. I'm, at this point, I'm just making big highlight reels. And they have all the talking heads of me saying, welcome to the law. And, the, you know, like the typical thing. And, and uh, it wasn't until months in, you know, I, I don't know when the moment was. I remember one time I was reading this manuscript from the, this manuscript from the interview of the porters when I'd finally gotten it translated because I didn't even get it translated, you know, for months. And um, it was harrowing. It was, it was like, we can't read, no one can read, illiteracy, you know, it was just some really dark stuff, stuff that I couldn't even put in the film. Yeah. And, and I just remember thinking like, oh shit, like what, what do I have here? I have proof of someone else's life. I have proof of someone else's career in a different, in a bad systematic way with an error. And then I have all that proof as a foreigner. And you know, that's, it's these imperialist notions and everything just freaking like drops a bomb on my, on my psyche. And I have no idea what to do. And I'm realizing, oh my God, I went there with a camera. Oh my God. I was like, just walked into their life and walked out like an asshole. And I was just realizing it, everything at one time, you know, like how this would be construed and how this would be construed and, and what would I want if I were them? And I had this emotional scar of having lived it as the guide. So I just kind of let that emotion lead it. And so I just let the emotion cut the film. Like <laughs> that was pretty much it. And it took three different two different films to get to that third film before before we have what we have now and it was all just the motion that's it <laughs> I, I don't feel like it didn't even really cut it amazing can you talk a little bit more about that i don't know if it's a if we could call it a crisis exactly that realization that bomb that was dropped on you can you talk a little bit more about what it was like to experience that and continue to cut the film through that yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, everyone has their hard challenges. Everyone has their struggles. Uh, this was mine at the moment. And uh, I was super, super self-absorbed to the point where, you know, I was living in a dream. I was living in my own dream and I was living in my own book and I was living in, you know, a painting. It was just not good. I would, I'd, have my eyes closed on an airplane and I'd float away. I'd have to open my eyes because I was floating away. Just wild stuff. And uh, I just saw everything working. It was such a self-centered view before. I saw everything working for me and it was so negative and I was becoming so, I was not going to go to a good place. 
and I had to come home. And at the same time, I'm working through thoughts that are beyond negative. And the way I test myself, <laughs> I idiotically, I'm very curious. So I test myself like, I can't be that bad. Could I think of that? And then I think of it and I'm like, oh my God, I am a terrible person. And, um, <laughs> you know, that just, that adds insult to injury and you just get worse and worse and worse. And working through the film itself was like a microcosm for my, my own issue. And, and the further I got along, the further I get better, the further I still get along, the further I get better, the further I release it, you know, I still have <clears throat> so much anxiety about releasing it. And then every time it's like, I'm freaking punching through a wall to, to get through the next level. And, uh, and the next level is just away from the bad things that I was at, which I had never even experienced before at all. Um, it was a, quite a lot working through the film itself was, was just a, a growth ease of growth you know the further i can get with it the further i can understand and the life and I, I i could literally talk forever about it but uh in short going through it i was living in my parents house in their basement because i was like if i'm gonna be here i might as well be in the basement for the story and for me going to my parents house was the absolute last thing i wanted to do because that's just a, that is bread and butter entitled you know, and I didn't want to be entitled. My dad always made fun of us if we were entitled. So I was like, I need to make it on my own. It needs to be on my own. And there was a lot of that for me. You know, that's the reason I, I just left after college. I need to make it on my own. I'm never coming back and things like that. And I was at my parents' house in their basement using my dad's editing system, which is still here. I have it in a different house now. I was eating their food and I had to. Like I was not, I couldn't, I couldn't get a job because I had to make this film. Like I had to do this. At that point, I had, the, I was the only person with this footage. Like no one else has it. So it's not that I'm good or bad or whatever. It's just like, if you end up with the only footage of something that you feel you have to share, like you have to share it. Or you feel like they would feel like you have to share it. You have, you have no choice. The choice is either do it or no, or don't. And so you feel like you have to, you feel compelled, like you don't, which is in itself a whole mind screw, you know, just, it could go on forever. But uh, I think a lot of people would do the same thing in the situation. And um, that's what I do. I do think that. And then coming to grips with your own shit is, you know, Coming to grips with your own shit is a terrible phrase, actually. Come to grips with new shit. You should get away from your old shit and go to new shit. And I mean, I don't know anything. I just know it. It was it was painful. My mom, you just start to appreciate that there, you know, there are other real things happening in the world. And that was the transition, you know, away from me and my problems, which are only gonna get worse the more I focus on them, the more I talk about them, the more I do this and that. It's only getting worse. Why is it getting worse? Let me talk about it more. And then realizing, you know, other people are affected, whether it's your family or they're affected by your decisions and they will continue to be affected and they're there to help and support, but in helping and supporting, they're giving up something and it's putting a strain on them. And then you can start to see that strain. And once you do then it's like, oh shit. 
All right, yeah. So still a lot of learning to do, but it's wild. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Could you talk a bit about the, the tension around representing the porters? You mentioned, um, you know, how would they want it to be seen or what would, it, what would the implications be? How would this come over and so on and so forth? Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how that understanding of the tension there emerged and what sort of decisions that left you to face in terms of the editing process or indeed the whole, the whole project? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, there have been, essentially at one point I recognized like, I've actually put the docs together and realized I've walked into a big problem. And I've only learned more about that problem as I get further into the world, you know, more of the roots of it, more of the causes, um, more of the consequences. But I, there was a point when I was like, this is some serious stuff. Like this is a this is probably a problem. This underpay, and uh, how am I going to approach it? All right. So on one thing, you have the porter's <clears throat> life. This this job. How would you want to be represented? You know, how would Steve want Steve's job or the job of a podcaster represented? If I was going to go do an immersive project as a podcaster, how would you want to see your job? And and granted, you know, let's say you're from a country that might not be as you know as popularized on the internet so you're from like a more of a developing place and you don't use internet as much and there's a, a small likelihood that your job will even land on that stage and if it does then what do you want it to show so that's like okay they'll be shown what what would they want you can never really know you can guess and then it's like you also have this issue, right? So you're not only showing Porter life, but you're showing uh, a country. You're showing a country, a country that might not be on the international stage as much, especially like this from within um, or from as close to within as you can get. I'm still a foreigner. How would you want that to be represented? Well, you know, there are journalists before who have come at governments. There are journalists before who have pointed out issues and done so explicitly in an accusatory way. And they might ex expel and, and reveal that issue, but then in doing so, they get banned from the country. And then America is hated or, you know, there are a lot of, there are repercussions to all your actions. So I'm thinking, okay, you gotta have this information out, but you don't wanna do it in an accusatory way, you know, because that's not gonna help the issue. That's gonna cause more problems. So how do I get it out in just, how do I just get it out without getting it out? You know, without saying, look here, this is the thing you need to look at. This is the problem. And just recognize that this is what's going on. And uh, all that decisions, all those decisions, you know, the most passive way to present the information ultimately was like, fuck it, I just wiped it out. I was like, I'm just gonna put the clips in, literally in sequence of how they came into the camera because I've been doing all this editing. And once you get into editing, which is a wild skill, as you know, you can manipulate the hell out of everything. You can make events happen that didn't happen. You can, you can cut amazing things and put one mountain together with another. And it can look like it's right here. Like all these mountains are right here and you're in this valley below and this mountain could be in another country, you know? And if you do it well, you can really make it look all related. And, um, the breadth of knowledge and possibilities was too much for me. 
it was incomputable. Like I could, there's too much to do. And so it was just like, let's just freaking, the easiest thing is let's just do it as it is, you know, like as it was, as it came into the camera. And so for most of the thing, most of the clips, probably 90% are literally organized in consequential order. And when I finally did that, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I figured it out. I figured it out. Like, this is going to be it. And then the, uh, you know, the, I was like, my face is red for some reason. And then the, um, the interview that overlays it, the Porter interview, I literally, I cut the entire film and I just plopped that in, in the empty space. And it becomes such an integral part of the film, but it was just plopped in. The whole thing was like, just this raw, here it is. And I was going to get music and I was going to get a composer and he was very talented. I was going to pay a ton of money and drop more money. And then I was like, I shouldn't draw that much money, A and B. Maybe like it's more authentic to my experience if there is no music because that's, I didn't have any headphones. That was one of my things, like no headphones for the whole thing. And um, then it is what it is now. But yeah, that was pretty much, I don't even remember the question, but that was, that's pretty much how it guided my, how all the different perspectives. But the thing is you can get so, 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 so obsessive that you're now going into a negative hole again. And, um, you know, by the end of the cutting, I'd finished the movie months before I released it the first time. And I spent those three more months obsessing, obsessing, obsessing like this was too much obsession i would literally if you ever do edit you can go frame by frame and a frame is like a fraction of a millisecond um i think one thirtieth or something and if you go one early like you know their smile goes from like this to like this and if you go in late and it drops a little and they're like oh that's negative effect and if it's early but then it's not long enough and you know it's either too short or too long or too this or too that it's always two or two and um I could never, I, I, I eventually I was going like this, like left, right, left, right to the side of the frame and I'd look away and then I just like go on to the next frame. Cause I, I didn't want to see what I had even done. That's how bad the obsession was at the end. Yeah. Amazing. So another aspect of the film is of course, enormously demanding physically. You're carrying loads of up to hundred kg on your back, but not on on shoulder straps like we might imagine but actually on these namlo headbands where you strap people when they see the film will see that you, you strap this load to your back carrying two or three people's rucksacks via this headband on top of your head the force and the weights all going through the head into the spine into the neck and i understand that you didn't do an awful lot of physical prep for this you have a background in college level lacrosse athletics and so on so you had some physical background but you didn't do any specific training from what i understand i'm wondering what what was that like the physical part and were there any lasting consequences for your neck that sort of spinal compression there there was no lasting consequence or there not yet that i know of i uh i went the first couple of days you put it on the nomlo and you're in some severe pain you know you're, you're trying to go like this and this and you get spasms of serious pain and then you take it off at arrest and you can't like move your neck and you gotta go like, go like this. And uh, 
you realize you soon start to realize your back doesn't hurt that much at first first just your neck and you start to realize i have to move as one you know i have to move as like uh, i can't lift my head like this to look up i, I can still feel it now when i do that actually you know it like it's just going to hurt a lot. It's going to hurt back here underneath your skull because the pressure then will all be redistributed because it's in a line. So if you move like this and it's all going to come right here. And uh, so you just have to move as one. You have to always be cognizant like that this weight is coming in one line and you move in that one line. Otherwise, you're going to redistribute the weight and it's going to hurt. And as you go on, your, your back starts to kill. The more weight you add, it starts to hurt more and more and more. Um, but eventually, you know, the Namlo is actually, you know, some, some would say it's better. And if you look at the founder of North Face, I think he still swears by using one. So when you're using a Namlo, unlike a backpack, which pulls you back, a Namlo and a tump line is what the English word is for it, the class of, you know, tool. Um, it, put, it leans you forward. So you're in an aggressive stance. You're moving fast. You know, you're you have all of your weight distributed across a larger portion of your body. So it's your whole entire back and, and, uh, and you can move like some days we would move, we would fly and there would be no pain. Some days, I mean, half of one day, you know, or half of another day, I'd always end up lagging behind quite a bit, but it was quite, it was quite intriguing. And at the end, when you're carrying 220 um, pounds or whatever, it may be a hundred kilos, but it's probably more like 90. Um, which is like one of the heavier loads a local porter will carry, like a supply porter just supplying hotels and restaurants with things, not for expeditions. Uh, yeah, there's extreme pain. There's extreme pain, you know, in your back and you have to walk upstairs in a certain way. Otherwise, you know, it just really hurts. You have to kind of press up instead of up and forward. I would press up and then forward and up and then forward. And once I was getting really tired and, uh, the pain was, you know, unfortunately that little meditation thing, not little, that meditation experience kind of like taught me to remove myself a bit so I could, I could make it through it. You know, the second you pick up that weight, the days change, they've changed their day to help your day. Now you're going to finish it. Like you're going to finish this weight. Um, and so you carry it and the weight, the, the pain is very, it's a little difficult to remember. I ever, at that point, I think probably every single part of your body is hurting. Um, but I was also pushing myself to the limit in a very short amount of time without the proper acclimation. So, you know, in a way, I think the, the Namlo can be better than the backpack. You know, if you want to carry bigger loads, it's probably more efficient. It's probably going to hurt less um, if you can get good at it. Maybe not hurt less, but it, it, it's going to be more efficient. You'll be able to carry more longer distances probably. Um, and my bones became so strong carrying it. But, but it does hurt. And I know that one of my friends saw it. He said, he's in Nepal and he's Nepali. And he said, my dad, when we were young, he used to, if we ever bad mouth or did something bad, he'd all he'd do is just go like this. And, I, and he'd show us the lump on his forehead from the Namlo, you know? And yeah, so it's, it's very real. It's very real what it causes. There's nothing I don't think for me, but uh, it, you know, it's a very big pressure on your head and you feel like your head's shrinking. I feel like my head is like shrinking the whole time. And then your back is getting compressed and just like, which isn't bad, you know, it's actually 
if you just feel stronger, you feel like your bones are more together at the end of it. What's the strategy for removing yourself from the pain that you discovered at that meditation retreat and then used when you're carrying that load? I think it was just, I was just like, I gotta get this done. It was not so much a, a technical strategy, what I, which I could have probably implored. Um, if I really wanted to get meditative with it, I probably could have used the technique. Uh, but meditation, you're not moving. Um, so you can stay focused. To move and be focused, I think might be harder, you know? Um, so I couldn't, I'm like not at that level. I can't be like fully meditating as I'm walking. But uh, to me, it was just like, does it really matter how much pain it is? Because you have to do this, you know? It's like, you have to finish this. You can't pull up now. So does it really matter how much pain there is? And you get to that point, there's still pain, but it doesn't matter. So maybe it starts to subside or it's very hard to remember, to be honest. It's very hard to remember that section, that section. Because hmm. I, I don't know why. I don't know why it's hard to remember. I just remember the payoff at the end. And I was like, Talk a bit about that payoff. Yeah, that was that was it. That was it, dude. I put the weight down and you challenge yourself with everything, you know, like can I go can I make it through the whole city without putting it down? At that point, I was putting the weight down every couple of steps. You know, it was taking us a long ass time, much longer than it should have for someone carrying hundred kilos. And uh so at the end of the, I'm gonna go these longer distance and I couldn't and I waited. I was like, no, I'm gonna try again and go even make it all the way to the hotel and you know, it's all the way. It's like a, a minute or two. Um, but it felt like a long time. And um, I remember putting the weight down. And it was not so much that the pain is gone. It was just this had been five years. This had been five years of my life. And yeah, I could start to, yeah. If I really transport myself back, dude, it was... I don't know, dude. It was five years of my life and everyone has their struggles in life. This was the five years of mine. That was three or four or five. I don't know how I'm ever many. It felt like five. And I was just so adamantly glued to this idea of being able to do this thing, you know, thinking that I could do something bigger and doing it and not having proof and then not being able to prove it and trying so many different things. I mean, failing so many different times and on, on big scales and, and really screwing, like really neglecting myself for a long time. I mean, in the nature I was writing, I, I write a lot. I don't so much anymore, I hope to again, but it's a very lonely work, you know, not lonely like, you're just alone most of the time. So most of my adult life, I've been alone. And um, that's not a bad thing. It's what I've chosen. But it was very, very, very hard. I just wanted to be with friends. I just wanted to party like everyone else. I just wanted to, I just wanted to do everything else. And, it, and I just knew that I needed to get to this point where I could be like everyone else. I could get a stable life. And, and it was... Uh, you know, just the amount of times you, you go crazy and you're writing in a room alone and you 
not showering because you don't speak to anyone and you're showering when you do shower you're like not even there you're I remember crying one time because the pressure was just so much you, you self-impose so much pressure on yourself and I felt like I had a gun going off in my head one time and it was just like work 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 and you know it's hard it's hard to ever relate to these I'm not going to say I'm artistic but to someone who's pursuing any of the arts I think everything's an art but you're pursuing any of the arts it's hard to relate unless you do it but there's just to be recognized in an office it might not take as much work and it's not saying it doesn't take as much work to succeed it's just to that first rung to be recognized in an artistic pursuit there may be a lot more people trying it and so it takes a long time to get there and or maybe not but it did for me and it was freaking super tough so that five years setting that bag down and then going into the closet underneath and cry i, I cried um yeah it was freaking it was like oh my god like i have i have something like i've done this phase like this phase is over this phase of having to get of having to prove it is over and uh it was just such a weight was lifted off my back it was i i could have collapsed if i if i had let myself collapse i could have collapsed in a heartbeat i could have just been like it had nothing to do with the weight it had nothing to do with the 200 220 kilos like oh you must have been so tired it had nothing to do with that it was just there's actual footage, our camera held up, our computer held up. We got the footage into the computer. Like I can actually show people what I do. Like this is, it was a big moment for me. And so, yeah, I was pretty, it's thank you for asking, but yeah, the, that would be a big moment for anyone. Just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, yeah. In loneliness you get, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. In loneliness, you feel like you have a lot to prove. You feel like in loneliness, you get very driven because you have nothing else to do. So you have nothing else to do but work. You have, you know, and so you do, you do it. And then you work, 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 and you go nuts and you don't accomplish anything. And the longer you don't accomplish anything, the more pressure you put on yourself. And then, yeah. Well, the film has been very well received so far. When did you release it? And what's it been like, the positive reception you've been getting? Yeah, it's it's fortunate, it's not fortunate that it's a bad about issue, that it's about a bad issue. Um, it's hard to rag on when it's about something real and serious, uh, which helps my personal ego because people don't rag as much on the filmmaking or something. Because of the highlighting of the wages of the portraits, that's the issue you're talking about? Yeah, because it highlights the underpaid and the segregation and all that issue stuff that there's a lot more to. It's hard to rag on that. Uh, I released it in March probably on a website and I just like put it out and told my Instagram, which no one pays attention and I don't really pay attention. So I think the, it says like a thousand or something views. And, and then I was like, well, this isn't enough and it's not growing. I, I guess I need to launch like a campaign, like a marketing campaign. And so I just launched the campaign full bore 
and I was working as a furniture mover at the time because I needed some money. But every day I work as a furniture mover is another day I can't push this. So then I, I want to stop that and I work and quit and work and quit. And um, I launched this whole campaign. It was like, let me go to every climbing gym in the country and see if every single one in the country wants to share it. And then after them, we'll go to the mountaineering clubs after them. And it wasn't like I knew this all at the beginning. It was always like, oh, what the hell do I do now? Oh, oh, let's go there. Oh, oh let's go there. And, um, and then we went to, you know, yeah, so climbing gyms, to mountaineers, to universities, and, and you're compiling a, a list of people and dropping out the lower names as the bigger names come in. And, and then you're playing Monopoly, basically. And so by the time I'd sent some stuff to, to, through an alumni network to someone who worked at CNN, I had had this like, here's what the film's about and here's our support. And you have names like, you know, the British Mountaineering Council, Climbing Magazine, and they look big, like they're big looking names. And um, that's what I had. And you have 28 universities in America who have agreed to share and join this. And you can say the big name schools, you know, and, and other big schools, and you just throw it at them. And you're only telling them so that's like, look, like this isn't a joke. Like I could have sent you this at the beginning and I have sent it to everyone at the beginning and no one cares. Now just care, trust me, you should open this file. And uh, then the, the woman who was gonna report on it, who had the opportunity, she watched the film was like, damn, this is dope. This is fascinating, like a report on it. And so I don't remember, I think that was about your question. It was about, <laughs> right? I don't remember, I got carried away. Yeah, it's bang on the question. I was saying it's been so well received and what's that been like? Oh, oh, oh. So, I mean, it's wild. It's wild. You know, if you made a podcast and all of a sudden there's only 43,000 people have seen it, which honestly, it needs. To, I feel like it needs to be a lot more. Like, it just, I feel like it needs to be a lot, lot more. I feel like if you're going to go to Everest, you need to see this and understand, at least for the time being, because it's education. Cause you wouldn't see any of this stuff in the film. You won't see if you go to Everest, even if you climb, it's all segregated. It's all behind closed doors. You will not know of this. And I did not know of it when I went as a, as a tourist. So I feel like I want millions and millions of people to see it, but whether I want that or not, when 40,000 people do see it, it's a freaking wild ride. You know, it's like, like this CNN article came out and I've probably gotten, you know, around 50, maybe less, maybe more, um, like notes and messages and emails. And and 50 is like, oh, it's not that much, but again, 50 different, you know, like 10, 12, 15, 25 different people, 30, 40 on Instagram messaging you and you have constant messages and you want to connect with every single person. So you're asking about their life and you're trying to be nice. And, and, and then you have all these emails and then it's like, it's, it's a very unique feel. You feel like you could run through a wall, you know, like I could literally run through a wall right now and be fine. Not right now. It's, it's waned a bit, but if everyone's rooting for you, it's like, you're getting all that. And you're just like, I'm freaking wild right now. <laughs> and uh, it's been a great thing. I think the trick is to stay focused. You know, if I want it to get bigger, I have to stay focused in those moments and distance myself from the phone and, messaging and everything so that I can continue to like do the work I need to do and and uh 
it is a quite a unique experience. I think it's quite unique. It's a lot of energy, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of freaking, it's a lot of energy and it's nice to hear messages and things. My favorite messages are for anyone in Nepal who sees the film because that's ultimately who I made it for was Nepal. And um, so I like those messages. If they're good, I like them. If they're bad, I like them too. Well, they're gonna really hurt if they're bad. Um, Americans, I don't so much mind. And then, I mean, yeah, it's pretty, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool, but hopefully, you know, it goes further. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the life cycle of the film is, is nowhere near complete yet. But mm -hmm. I'm curious if your mind is already starting to work on other ideas, if there's anything on the back burner, uh, what's next? Yeah, that's, a, that's, everyone asked that, you know, but yeah, it's a good thing. It's been a very consuming for a while and um, very consuming. So you're not going to think of what's next. Cause like, I don't even know if anything's next. Mm. Like, I don't want to make a film ever again. You know, I don't want to do this ever again and that ever again. This is it. This is too much. This is it. And um, now that the film's getting out there, I'm becoming more detached. Uh, I still feel like there's systems that need to be put in place to actually like fix the problem and make sure this isn't like just a, a movie and, you know, make sure it's not just hearsay and let's help and like make sure there's actually like changes and sustainable, you know, things that happen from this or from this or not, did that just happen to fix things? Uh, so I don't know how that side of things will develop. Um, but I'll, I'll, I have the itch to do some. Now it's like I'm starting to realize like, oh, I need to do something else. Like, do I just go straight to writing and write? I'd be happier. I'd be happier if I just go straight to writing and write. And that's what I'm more in love with. And I'm very much in love with. And I go back and forth with that or do, or do I have to do another film? And to be honest, half of me has to do another film just to show people that I'm not this outdoorsy hiker dude, which everyone thinks I am now, is that I'm this, I love hiking and everything. And I don't like hiking. I don't like hiking at all. You know, I would go so I, I don't hate it, but I probably hate it. <laughs> and uh, it was like, I need to do another project to show that that's not me. And I'm thinking about some other things um, perhaps in the Sahara Desert as a Bedouin is one I'm thinking of. And it, it's taking a turn. I don't know what the final turn will be when I'm ready to launch on another project, but I have, I also have no money and I have all this debt from this film and I haven't been trying to get money exactly because it's very weird and convoluted. Like, getting money for the film was like, oh, you know, it felt weird at first. I'm trying to figure it out. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it would be dope. If I got a ton of money, definitely. I'd, well, I maybe would do like a dip, a whole different new type of film and maybe not. I mean, at this point, I'm just kind of like, I want to do more. I don't know what more is. I just, I need to do more too. It's like, you have to, you know, you can't just not do anything. I mean, I can't, if I had a ton of money, I could, but I don't have a ton of money. <laughs> and that money is kind of whatever. It would just be nice. I don't know. So yeah, maybe Everest. I mean, maybe Sahara Desert, maybe 
in the Sahara Desert. That'd be cool. Running in sand dunes and riding horses and camels in the desert. Yeah. See, I'm still just romantic in mind. Mm-hmm. Nate, that's wonderful. So your the site where everyone can see this film free at the moment is theporterfilm.com. It is, yeah. Everyone can see it free everywhere. There's like because of my freaking incongruencies, there's like two or three versions. You know, they're like different because I just couldn't decide on anything. And um, it's on Vimeo. It's on YouTube. I have to actually reload it to the YouTube. I spelled someone's name wrong. And then it's on, I mean, it's it's literally, I'm trying to get this thing everywhere. So it's on a bunch of magazines. It's, it's still on the British Mountaineering Council, Climate Magazine, Outdoor Journal, Vimeo, YouTube, my website. I guess technically now it's embedded on CNN. Hopefully I can get it to a bigger platform so that it can really get out there. But uh, we're, we have Spanish and English subtitles and we're getting French right now. He's a magazine in France has asked to interview us. And then German, I think one magazine in German asked to interview. So you want to get like the subtitles so that people can watch it. Ultimately, yeah, I mean, just grow it. I mean, why not? Why not just freaking send it and see how big it can get? Well, it's a wonderful film, and I encourage everyone to to check it out. Theporterfilm.com. And Nathaniel Menninger, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.